Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And normally I take my camera and my microphone and scour the earth looking for the best. I didn't have to go that far. He is a New Yorker at heart. Okay. He was born and bred in Brooklyn. And he did amazing, amazing things with his career. And he's still going strong and he's even producing and writing today. He's been a fan of the show. He's been watching the show. He's worked with some of the people that we've actually had as well in the past on Treehouse Stories. Um, those that know that cover, I know he's going to be like, oh, I hate this cover. But we'll talk about that cover in a minute. You know who it is. I'm happy to, to announce today. Finally got him here. One and only Man Parish. <laughs> you think you had problems last week? Just wait till this show happens. You know, Man Parish. He says he don't like his. He don't like the record. He he caused the scene. But we're not going to go into that right yet. Everybody had that cover anyway. Hey, Paisan, how you doing? Man Parish. First of all, is ethnically Italian, born and bred in Brooklyn. So he's a, he's a he's your he's your typical stereotype, which has has. He shed that whole linguine thing. He Cugino from 86th Street. He shed it all that long, long time ago. Yep. Real pizza. Real pizza. He Lenny's Pizza, Spumoni Gardens. Yep, yep, yep. All that. Yeah. Spumoni Gardens. You ain't been to Brooklyn unless you went to Spumoni Gardens. Or JMV on 18th and 65th. Or was it 60s? I can't remember. I forget so long. uh, Anyway, thank you. Man Parish, I've been going back for months trying to get him. Do you mind? Not because of me. I've been around. That's I'm me. Then you on vacation. Then you on vacation. My my mistake. My mistake. I, I I all of a sudden I woke up and says I want Man Parish, and he goes, Lenny, I can't. I'm on my way to the airport. I'm like, we'll do it on today's date, which is great. Thank you again for agreeing to do it. Um, man, before I start. Have you ever been asked what is your real name? Oh yeah, it's all Emmanuel Manuel Parish, but it changed to Man Parish from Andy Warhol, the famous photog- uh, uh, um, artist who did the soup, Campbell soup cans and all that. If you don't know who Andy Warhol is, well, you probably should, but you can Google major major influence in modern art. Um, uh, uh, one of the guys that worked with him took my photo. Uh, in this, in the late seventies, and Andy Warhol had, had Interview Magazine, and um, said, "We're going to put you in like what's happening downtown." I said, "Okay, I don't, you know, all right, cool, cool." So I, I was doing a bunch of like local bands and art bands and producing stuff even way back then before computers and sequencers and all the digital audio, real time thing. And um, uh, he called me. He said the photos came in. Let's go up to Interview Magazine. And we'll decide which one we're going to use in the article. I said, great. Then we went up there and we're standing there and Andy Warhol comes in and says, what's going on? And I was like, oh, Andy Warhol, you know, uh, which which later on turned into a whole big other thing. But um, he said, this is Manny Parrish. And he goes, Manny Parrish? He goes, that sounds too common. Manuel. Eman- it's, it's not Emmanuel, it's Manuel, but that's a Latin, Italian, Span- you know, Spanish, Mediterranean name. And he said... Um, you should call yourself, we're going to call you Man Parish 
because there was a photographer called Man Ray and he was quite well known. I'm like, I don't give a damn as long as you put my face in the newspaper. You know, I'm like 20, 19, 18, 19 years old. Like, yeah, call me Victor. So a couple of months later, we were someplace and this guy introduced me as Man Parish. And I was like, oh, no, that's weird. No. What are they going to say? Hey, man, you know, that's weird. When everybody else was John or Joe or Lenny or whatever, I'm this weirdo man. Well, well, actually, I'm the weirdo man. Wait, you're actually Emmanuel in real life. Not with an E, just an M, Manuel. Manuel, man, without Manuel. the E. Manuel. Uh-huh. But that's like nails on the blackboard because I hate when people go, hey, Manuel. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's Manny to friends, but Man Parish for the music stuff because it stands out, you know? The other question is before I get to the, you know, everybody, and this just happened this morning when other DJs ringing me saying, How many inches am I? No, Lenny, oh. wait. They asked me this question. He said, When I saw Manny, Man, what, Man Parish's picture, I thought he was black. Is <laughs> <laughs> that a big one? So uh, uh, um, when we were doing, well, it was hip hop in those days, which turned into freestyle and then electro, same stuff. Um, we could talk about the, the origins and how it went to hip hop, but everybody thought I was black, right? Because it was basically urban, the fever in the Bronx, you know, it was uh, 92 KTU. And we could talk about that because I did all those vocoder 92 KTU that used to hear on. KTU for 20, 10, 15 years. That was me. Hey, wait, wait, wait. 92 KTU. Yeah, that was that me. You? Yeah, that was me. Uh, Carlos de Jesus was the program director. And we tried to figure out a way to get our stuff on the radio more. And it came up with the idea, what if I use the vocoder and I give them call station that Carlos de Jesus, 92 KTU, classics. You know, and it'll give them an, a, a unique sound. And I was the first. Now I'm taking credit with it. I was the first person ever to do robot call letters for a radio station. Now it's everywhere around the world. But we did that from KTU, which went out to seven million listeners at the time, or something like that. And in exchange, like a form of payola, uh, Carl says just would put anything that we played on the radio, as long as it didn't have dirty words in it. He would put it into heavy rotation. So. Hip Hop Bebop, Boogie and Bronx, Man Made. I did Two Sisters. We got Two Sisters. I did IRT, Watch Your Closing Doors, COD in the Bottle. These are all things that I did. I worked on the Alicia Records. All that stuff got top airplay because I was giving them free stuff. And then the record company would call Kiss FM and go, well, you know, Man Parish is on the top number one of their play charts. What's Who? I'm like, oh, you guys are behind. You get with it. You know what I mean? They'd go to Billboard. They'd look it up and go, oh, my God, we're missing out on this record. And then we would call uh, BLS to go, hey, BLS, you know, Man Parish is number one. And you guys are. So everybody thought I was black. There was, there was a radio station in L.A., the biggest urban radio station in L.A., CV Wonder, I think it was part owner. When they found out I was white and gay, strictly dickly, as we call it in the business, <laughs> when they found out I was gay, they threw me off of there. And BLS threw me off. It was only DJ Red Alert that would play my stuff on uh, on BLS. But I got reverse discrimination, which was weird. You know what I mean? But it didn't bother me. I remember we played a place in uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. And we didn't do a sound check. Uh, we just showed up. And I had a show where I had this cape over my head and this uh, 
the lights would come on low and all the smoke would come down over the stage. And uh, um, uh, we had this creature and it would come out and pull my head up. And I had David Bowie glam glitter makeup on and then they would finish it off with glitter. So I looked like the gayest fag robot in the world, right? You know what I mean? I was sparkling and I was the only white dude in the place. And they were going, oh, 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 oh. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get killed, right? And then the first beat dropped and then everybody, you know, you know, started partying. So there was a lot of that too. There was a lot of, who's this guy Man Parish is playing? Oh my God, it's this gay white dude that looks like David Bowie or Boy George with glitter and makeup and all that kind More of More like Ziggy. And, and, and the background guys had graffiti jackets and skirts and they would twirl and the skirts would like, you know, fan out and like, this is a fucking hip hop club. Sorry for the F-bomb, but this was a hip hop club, you know, with stuff going on and, you know, like, we're great. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was great. It, it was it was pretty cool. So, yeah, I, to, to this day, somebody looked at one of my YouTube <clears throat> videos and wrote me to this day, uh, for the last 40 years, I thought you were a black dude and you're a white dude, even cooler. And I was broke back, thanks, you know. You were before any of the Justin Bieber's or any oh. As far as a, a commercial act that was doing black music, and it wasn't black. It, it was you know what I mean. It, it, no, no, it was urban. The urban now urban yeah. is black, right? Because of rap. But back then, it was Latin. Like I mean, there were uh, groups like I, uh, uh, um, Freeze doing A E A E I O U, and there was Alicia. There was white, black, and 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 Latin all mixed into one. And to let everybody people people know. Hip hop, bebop, the word is hip hopping is jazz for dancing and bebopping is music. So hip hop, bebop, don't stop is dance to the music, don't stop. That's what the title is about. So um, it was just hip hop back then was club dance music. Rap was very starting to happen, Rapper's Delight and all that kind of stuff, but it was not rap that happened today. You know, it, it, it kind of morphed later into it because you had hybrid groups that were doing dance rap with heavy rhyme on it. You know, uh, we did Boogie Down Bronx, which had rhyme on it, but I put a vocoder behind it, which made it not so hard. I took the edge off of it because I didn't want it to be marginalized. I wanted to have a wider appeal. But yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a white fag. Okay. How does music find you? This is I ask everybody the same question. Oh boy, as a young kid, as a young yeah. So the uh, we didn't have music in the house. There was one of those little transistor nine volt radios, and my mother listened to talk radio, ten ten winds, or my father did in the car. So there wasn't a lot of music. My father was a terrible, terrible piano player. Um papa, um papa, Daisy, papa, Daisy, give me. You have to learn these songs. They're classics. <laughs> so he sent me to a piano teacher. And to this day, I can't read or write music. Right? It's all done. I've done 200 people orchestras and, and, and choir. It's all done by ear. So if you tell me, take the song and play it in F sharp, I know where an F sharp is, but I don't know what, what black and white notes after that. So um, after my third piano lesson, she hit me across the fingers, knuckles with a ruler. And uh, I'm going to say some F-bombs. I called her a fucking ugly cunt and that she should go to hell. And I was maybe eight years old. And um, 
that started my music career. <laughs> I, got, I never took piano lessons after that, obviously. Uh, but I got interested in music. I, I bought, a, I think I found a record player in the garbage. And I went out to Corvettes, a, a department store. I went into the music section and they had, I don't know who was who was what was what. And I found Grand Funk Railroad double live album. And the only reason I bought it is because you can get two records for the price of one. And I went home and I put it on and I was thrilled that I could actually, you know, get two records for the price of one. And I wasn't really into it. Then I discovered things like Parliament, Funkadelic, started watching Don Kirsten's rock concert. I was a huge David Bowie fan. I can't smoke pot now because I get paranoid. I don't drink, so I don't get high. But back in those days, me and my friend Kenny used to go to the, um, it was then called the Academy of Music, which became the Palladium. And we would buy, at 12, 13 years old, we would buy acid <laughs> and drop like, 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 like the windowpane acid that Jimi Hendrix did. And we'd see groups like Papa John Creech and Quicksilver Messenger Service. Like, who's that? But we didn't care because we could drop acid. And trip at the, you know, the disco ball, you know what I mean? I remember going home one day and I thought a fluorescent light was following me home. And then I went to the subway and everybody turned into zombies. And when I got home, my mother said, did you get drunk tonight? And I went, yeah, I'm tripping my, you know, I'm tripping my brains out. Yeah, I did. She goes, you better get inside before your father sees me. And I'm lying in my bed, tripping my brains out. You know what I mean? So music was, <laughs> I got into music like that. Um, and then I got my first, well, there's a series of events which we could talk about, but I wound up leaving home and building my first synthesizer and I was still smoking weed. That's when you would get a, an ounce of weed for $30, right? And, a, and, and then a nickel bag was this much in a, 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 you know, in a, in a Ziploc baggie and stuff like that. So I lived in a bong. I made synthesizer sounds and it had black lights and those little lights where the heat comes up and the thing turns around and projects things all over the wall. And the neighbors avoided me because, you know, they smelled weed and they heard synthesizer through an echo plex, you know, in an echo machine. So I started doing it's 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 ambient music now, but it was, you know, uh, back then I called them soundscapes because I, I didn't read or write music. So I couldn't make songs and I was too embarrassed to get involved with a band. Because goes, all right, everybody, uh, play in D sharp this song. I, I, I couldn't do it. I never joined the band. So uh, for years, I did ambient music, would w- be ambient music now. So that's how I got into it, you know? And my synthesizer collection built and built and built. I remember one day I wanted an ARC 2400, and it was $2,500. I was living away from home, and I only called my parents when I needed money. And I said to my mother, uh, I want an ARP 2400 synthesizer. It's the newest thing out. Uh, this is all before MIDI. This is all just analog old school gear. And she said, how much is it? And I said, it's like $2,400, $2,500. She says, I'm not giving you $2,500. I said, Mom, if you don't give me the money, I'm going to become a male prostitute and sell drugs. So call me back. <laughs> she said, let me speak to your father. <laughs> Five minutes later, she calls me back and goes, or beat us down at the, you know, same as music, so we'll buy you a 2500 So I was pretty, I was a pretty ruthless little shady, you know what, to get what I did. But I, you know, I got it and built more music out of that. So what's crazy, what's crazy is, is that you do everything by musically ear. 
Yeah, but because of that, I met so many people in New York for music. That's how I started producing because I had a Moog synthesizer. I had a, a, a um, you know, an ARP 2600. I had a couple of synthesizer modules and everybody's, go to Manny's house. He's got a multi-track tape recorder. He can record your band. So everybody came to my place. You know what I mean? That's how I started producing records. Ah, see, I knew there was a little bit of a uh, behind the scenes. I was trying to figure out where this all begins. So let's talk about some of the bands that stepped your way. There must be one or two that. Boy was- George, Michael Jackson, Gloria Gaynor, uh, 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 Roberta Flack, uh, uh, Crystal Waters, uh, in Europe, uh, Visage, uh, Bronsky Beat. I had a group called Man to Man. Uh, I'm missing out a hundred. I, I have to. I have to look at my bio. That's fine. That's the who's who of, of, of the music industry at that time. The who's who. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But, but see, I tell us a lot. New York City was a small town. So before dance music, we used to go to Max's Kansas City and CBGB's because you were either into rock and roll, jazz, or classical. There was no other choice before disco started. So we hung out at Max's Kansas City, which was on uh, 1456. I think it's 16th and 17th or 17th and 18th on the east side of Park Avenue. And we would see Bruce Spring- Bruce Springsteen got booed off the stage for doing an acoustic set. Aerosmith used to come in their van and then stand outside trying to pick up girls. Uh, we saw Devo when they were nobody, the Ramones. Debbie Harry used to get up from behind the bar and play in Blondie and they get back behind the bar. And these were just, you know, uh, uh, talking heads. I mean, I can go... Th- Joan Jett and the Runaways, uh, all they were like like local bands. Uh, the cars used to drive down from Boston, so we used to see these people. So I was interested in music, didn't know how to make it. I went to high school performing arts because I was going to be an actor, and that's the place where they did Fame, the movie Fame. And I got thrown out about four months into it, the same day as Freddie Prince. Freddie Prince used to roll down, run down the hallway, open the door. And would shout something foul out of your, your mother's see you next Tuesday. And then shut the door and everybody would crack up. So the school had to get rid of him. But while they got rid of him, they were going to get rid of me too. Because I was talking back to the teachers. And I would repeat the see you next Tuesday jokes and all that. And if you don't know what see you next Tuesday is, take the four letters and you'll figure it out. So <laughs> one day, I, I uh, uh, somebody from the principal's office comes up and uh, manual parents, yeah, you come on down to the principal's office. I thought, oh boy, what happened now? And it was one of those principal's office where they had the divider with the, with, with the defrosted windows and the principal was in the cubicle within the office. And she's screaming at somebody and I said, oh my God. Door opens, Freddie Prince and walks out, you know. You! Get in it! And I went, oh my God. You ain't nothing but shit. You're wasting time, valuable space. You're a loser. You're never going to be anything in this world. And I said, you know what? You fat, ugly dyke. Everybody knows you're eating Mrs. Shine's P-U-S-S-Y on the fourth floor. You can go yourself. And ah, she went ballistic. And I walked out and slammed the door. And the girls in the office were laughing. Got downstairs, walked out. And Freddie Prince was sitting on the steps smoking a cigarette. He goes, oh, you too? And I said, yeah. He goes, don't worry, dude. We're going to be somebody, and all these idiots back here are going to be nobody. And um, well, he was a more of a somebody than I was. Actually, his Freddie Prince Jr. sometimes contacts me on 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 Facebook, you know, because I, I was with his dad in school and stuff like that. 
And I was working at the Metropolitan Opera House at the same time as an extra on stage at night carrying spears for $10. So when, I'm sure a lot of people here don't go to the opera, but if you ever see a picture of an opera, there's a crowd. And the non-singing crowd is called extras, extra numeraries, I think the literal name, but extras. You're, you're a villager, you're, you're an army guy, a non-singing role. And I was ninth grade, whatever year that was, like 14, 13, 14 years old. And one day, this guy comes in and goes, I got organic medicine. Wouldn't it be great if we all dropped acid and went on stage? And of course, we go, yeah, that's a great idea. So we all drop acid. And about 45 minutes later, we're standing backstage, ready to go on stage. And the acid hits everybody. And we're in a processional march with orange grease paint on. And we're walk walking through... I think it was Aida. We're walking through the sand and there's horses pulling a chariot in front of them. And I was the first or second behind the horse. And we get on stage and that's the old days with the thousand watt light bulbs. And I'm going, oh, I'm in the desert. I'm tripping. Look at the beautiful colors and the music. And I could feel the warm sand as we're walking in between our toes. When we got off stage, the horses took a crap and everybody walked through horse shit <laughs> on stage. Around. No, 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 no. Don't go upstairs. Come over here. And they put out buckets and we had to dip our feet in the buckets on a trip when our brands out. So I had I had a very colorful childhood. <laughs> and that's only the beginning of it. <laughs> it sounds colorful, but it's a good story, though. It, I, I, man Paris stories on YouTube. I have 40 of them there. And that's only the beginning. Hopefully it'll be a a, a Netflix series, and I got a great idea for a series, but those are true stories um, that I did. Uh, I had a very rough life at home. My mother, well, in those days, mental health wasn't a big deal, right? I mean, it was a big deal, but not like it is today. Oh, no, no, no. We talk about it all the time. They slap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like slapping the hand, go, you're all right. I mean, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. Right. But it was, but it was like, um, it wasn't a mental health issue. You were the crazy family, you know? Oh, that's the crazy family on the block. And my mother was, well, we called it quirky in those days. It was mental illness and that turned into schizophrenia. So it got very bad for me. And I've been in therapy and it really helped because I kind of realized that my mother's illness, she wanted me to be perfect. And those years from an Italian, Jewish, I any one of those families, your firstborn is important. And I was adopted. So my mother wanted me to be perfect. And I think with the mental illness, it amplified that. And she became obsessed with me being perfect. So it turned into some of your old school people know Sybil, right? If you know, Sybil's mother was mentally ill and really tortured her. I was tied to the radiator and she tried to turn up the steam. Uh, I was, my mother would take um, extension cords and turn them to a cat and nine tails and try to whip me. Oh, Bad. She knocked me unconscious one day. My father pushed the door open to push my body outside. He didn't know what the hell had happened. Oh, well, thank you, Alexa. <laughs> we'll make sure that. <laughs> so, so for me, yeah, thanks, Alexa. So you were adopted? I was adopted. My father wanted to buy, it was $4,000. My father wanted to get a car. And my mother said, we're getting a kid. And I was adopted from Coney Island Hospital on Ocean Parkway, right off the Belt Parkway there. The woman went into the hospital under my adopted mother's name because in those days, you didn't have to show ID to get into the hospital. Like, what's your name? Mrs. Parrish. Okay, fine, you know. And uh, I had a really bad staph infection. It took me a week to get out of there. I almost died. And then handed me over to my mother. And 
little envelope with cash of four grand. And uh, that was it. Birth certificate said, Mrs. Parrish, Manning Parrish, done. Done deal. So I can't go back and find my real parents. But I heard it was like a lawyer and some girl in the office. And, you know, and here I am kind of kind of situation. Right. But it made it hard as a kid because I was in very my mother would come into my room and go, I was asleep. Manny, are you sleeping? I'm like, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, no, what's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, you're awake. And she would drag me out in my underwear with no shirt on in the snow and throw me out and lock the door. And I don't know if you can see it. I have a scar somewhere over here on my hand, punching through the glass because it's 12 degrees outside trying to get back in. Neighbors would come and put a blanket around me and cool down period and talk to my parents. And in those days, you didn't call the police. It just wasn't a thing that you would even think of. It's the crazy family. They're fighting well, again. Because you know the biggest fear we all had was when I get home, I'm going to get a bigger beating. Yeah, well, well, that too. And, and, and ironically, I didn't act out. I mean, I was bad in school, but I never got in trouble. I never was never arrested. I, I, I wasn't like robbing people, you know. Th those issues, when they came out, me, I didn't vent them uh, in, in other ways. So also simultaneously, I'm very tall. I'm six three, four. But I was like six one or six two in fifth or sixth grade. So my mother found online a doctor that was doing a growth study. Now I can't say the name or the hospital, but turns out this guy was one of the biggest pedophile files in in, in, in New York. Over a thousand victims and. Uh, my mother took me there and dropped me off, and he'd say, come back in an hour, go shopping, walk in the room and get undressed, and he'd take Polaroids of me naked and bend over and put your hand on your piece and uh, spread your cheeks and then come sit on my lap, and he'd have an erection. And then we have to now, now we have to masturbate because I'm teaching you to be a man, and if you can't masturbate, I'm going to put a finger you know where to help you get off. And I remember one time I was bleeding, and I took my underwear, and I... I was afraid my mother was going to find out and I was going to get a beating for it, right? Because it was too bizarre. And I threw it in the neighbor's trash can. And this went on for three years. Don't you tell your mother. This is a closed study. This is very important. Uh, and then um, I couldn't, between my mother being schizophrenic, I'd be sitting at the kitchen table. She'd tip my chair over backwards and drag me into the bathroom. You cut holes in the bathroom tiles with my bobby pins. And then you color them in with black pencil to to get back at me and smash my head against the tile. And I dropped the floor just crying. Like I can't, I can't I, what am I going to do? I'm 12 years old. I, I can't get my own apartment. I can't run away from home. It's a big world out there. But at 14, I finally left. And uh, it's a funny story how I left, but I wound up living with somebody who worked at the continental bathhouse in New York, which turned later into Plato's retreat. He didn't tell, he was 22 and I was, 14, but I was tall and I lied that I was 18. I lied to everybody I was 18. And I followed him to work one day and he opens a black door and goes downstairs and I open the door. The place is in black with a pin spot, like the old club. So it was a pin spot and that's it in the black room and the security guard at the door and it said like $10, which I didn't have. And he goes, well, you're going to pay. And I went up to him and went, hey, sailor, you know, like, I'll meet you later. You know what I mean? You know, see you later. He kind of, kind of thinks. And he let me in. And I walked downstairs, and if you ever see the movie The Ritz, it's not really like that, but there were palm trees and black lacquer floor with chrome glass and mirrors, a Bose sound system, triangle speakers, which had bass, which you never heard before, water sprinkling into the, in, in, into the pool, guys walking around in, 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 in towels. And I'm like, 
<laughs> you know, it's like like Darcy and the Wizard of Oz. It goes from black and white to color. Like, what the? What is this? And um, you, you, uh, someone said, uh, if you want to stay for the show, you should, you should get a good seat. I said, show. And they put out these chairs. And we sat down. And this woman comes out. And she starts singing. She's at the second or third song. And the video is up on YouTube. Hi, I'm Bette Midler. And this is my drummer, blah, 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 blah. And this is my piano player, Barry Manlow. And I got to see Bette Midler before she was Bette Midler like that. You know what I mean? She would sing, you know. Uh, and then I wound up leaving that situation. My mother found out where I lived and I went into Central Park. And of course, where do I wind up at the biggest gay cruising area in Central Park at 14 years old? And who's going to pick up a 14 year old? What a pedophile. I didn't know this. And oh, I telling him my mother, and he goes, oh, you can come live with me. No hassle. You know what I mean? Well, you know, uh, uh, uh. Uh, the guy was nuts, told me the space people were coming to take us away. We didn't have to leave a bag packed underneath the bed. But then we'd go on little trips. And he'd take me to Philadelphia, to Washington, D.C., to Amherst, Massachusetts, out to Long Island. Uh, I, I think we went down to Virginia, uh, upstate New York. Um, and this guy was a part of a pedophile ring. And, uh, and there would be another guy. You know, he was 32 and I was 14. And somehow or another, I thought, well, I'm probably gay. And this is what happens in gay culture. You, 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 when you're in a bad situation, you try to make sense of it. You don't realize it's a pedophile. As a 14-year-old, you don't have the neurons literally in your brain. If you have kids or a niece or a nephew have seen a 14-year-old, you can't, you can't put this together. But I thought, well, this is what gay people do to watch out for other gay people and he's taking me under his wing and please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to and please do not forget to follow us